Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. You know what he tells you that you can be? Like him. <laughs> you can be Christ-like, even as he is Christ-like. Listen, we're doing a, uh, a bit of a sermon series about discipleship. Last week we talked about kind of discipleship, a primer, how we can understand discipleship. And this week we're talking about hornets and discipleship. I bet you can't wait for that. Hornets and discipleship. We're going to be reading today out of Joshua chapter 24. So if you turn with me there, prepare our hearts. Amen? Can you say that with him right now? Prepare our hearts. Now that's kind of what this is all about today. That God is a God that goes ahead and prepares the situation for us, that prepares our hearts for Him. He is a God of, one of the things we say is of prevenient grace. It's the grace that goes before. It's the enormous privilege of God preparing us for whatever there is out there, and there's some exciting things out there. So, we're talking today about discipleship. And last week we covered about the fact that discipleship basically means following God. And after we follow him, particularly in the New Testament, Jesus, we become more and more like him. Isn't that a great thought, that we become more like Jesus? And discipleship things are all over the Bible. In fact, I think you could say the whole book is about discipleship. You could call the book discipleship, because it's all about any lesson about how to do what God wants us to do, how we can be like he wants us to be, how we can give like he wants us to give, how we can go how he wants us to go, that's discipleship. In a very real way, that's the whole book. But Jesus says, okay, I'm going to make of you disciples, and I want you to go now and make disciples. And that becomes our job, is to go now and make disciples. Now, there's a Joshua context to all this, as you might imagine. God leads his people to the promised land, and they get right up to the promised land, but not there, with Moses. And as you recognize earlier in Moses' history, God got disappointed with him and said, because of that, you are not going to lead them in, but you're going to have a protege named Yeshua, named Joshua, who will, in fact, go in, and he's going to lead the way. And so Moses dies. Joshua now prepares his people to go across the Jordan River, and then the fight's on and the fights for the promised land. And so that's kind of the context of this. And what you're reading here at the end of 24 is sort of Joshua's message after they've done that. They've gone into the promised land. They've done uh, to a great extent, not to the furthest extent, but to a great extent what God wanted them to do. And therefore now they're ready to hear Joshua's last words. And that's what this is all about. I like this. The theme of grace is huge in Joshua 24. I don't know if you noticed, but it's huge. And one of the ways you could know this is to know Israel could do nothing of its own. I mean nothing. Uh, In fact, when they try to do something on their own, they get in big trouble, almost invariably big trouble. What God does is says, hey, Abram, I know you've never heard my voice, but I've been preparing you to accept the call that I'm going to give to you right now. I want you to leave your land, leave your father, leave your inheritance. I'm going to take you to what we now know is the promised land. And I'm going to make of you a great nation, Abram. And out of that nation, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Now that has happened. That has happened. 
It's still happening today. It's still unfolding, but that's what God did. God made of Abram a great nation called Israel, and Israel then goes into the promised land, sees the promised land, and many hundreds of years later, Jesus launches from this nation. Jesus launches from this very land, uh, and he does it through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling the believers, and they go to every corner of the world and preach this incredible gospel. So I want you to know that's what happens with the theme of grace. But if you would go down in that passage, look real quick if you got your Bible there, and see if you can find all of these with me right now. And we're going to start here with uh, up there at the top. I'm just trying to find when the first one is. Uh, I think maybe the first one is verse 4 I gave. So here we go, here we go. I took, I gave, I gave, I sent. Have I lost you yet? Keep going down. Every time you see an I and then a verb, that's God doing something Israel couldn't do for itself. I took, I gave, I gave, I sent, I plagued, I did, I brought, I brought, I did in Egypt, I brought, I gave, I destroyed, I was not willing to listen to Balaam, I delivered you. I gave them into your hand, I sent the hornet before you, I gave you. Over and over and over and over. Y'all, that's your life. That's not just Joshua 24, that's you. You think, no, no, no. No, 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 no. Oh, no, no, no. No, I picked myself up by my own bootstraps. Well, just time out a minute, okay? Who gave you the boots? Who gave you the capacity to earn money to get the boots? Who gave you your hands? Who gave you your brain? Who gave you your feet? Who gave you life and breath? Who gave you all that stuff? I'm going to tell you, it wasn't you. It was me. Therefore, everything that happened after birth, I need for you to know, one way or another, I'm involved with it. And those tough times that you're going through, I'm involved with that too, in so much as I'm with you in those tough times, and we're going to a better place. And I want you to know, Dayspring, God, by His grace, has brought you here, even today, to sit here with us, that we might hear the Word of God. God is at work in your life. Do you believe that? Who believes that today? God's at work in my life. He's bringing me to a place, a better place than even the place I'm into today. I believe it, y'all. And so that's the theme of this morning. Now, I want to get down to this hornet thing. I'm fascinated by it. If you'll look down, this is a Hebrew word, by the way, that shows up just about three times. And you can see it in your Bible there in verse 12. Then the Lord sent the hornet before you and to draw out the two kings of the Amorites from before you but not by your sword or your bow. I think it's a great way to sort of conclude everything that just went before. I want you to know that I sent hornets in before you so that you could live in a land that you didn't earn, in cities that you didn't build, and you could eat from harvest you haven't planted. I did that for you. Are you grateful? Because if you're grateful, there is a, that's the cause, there's going to be effect. We'll get to that here in just a minute. But he said, I sent hornets before you. Now, I'm just going to use hornets to sort of capsulize everything that God did at that verse and before it. So let me tell you about hornets. We don't know exactly what this word means. There's Hebrew scholars that have looked at this and said, well, there are at least three possibilities and maybe more. But when we look at this word, what we know for sure is hornets in this passage is some kind of agent to disable or frighten 
the peoples of Canaan so they'll not be able to resist Israel's invasion. So there's something that's sent in before Joshua, something that's sent in before Israel to say, hey, we're here. And if you got to imagine, if you could think of a word that would better describe what would create terror, what's the better word? And let me tell you what I mean by this. Maybe wasp, that'd do it for me. Uh, bees, that would do it for me. And I think that th- that might encapsulate all three of those things. But hornets, can you just imagine? Let's just say you're an army of the living God. And you're, you're knowing that we're about ready to go in and we're about ready to face some people that probably ought to be able to beat us. Wouldn't it be great to know that God's sending ahead, not a hornet, but like a thousand of them? And that the front lines... Because has it ever happened to you? You've been at a picnic, and all of a sudden, here comes a bee. Everybody goes ballistic. Ah, ah, ah. Well, can you imagine 10 of them just like that? I'm not talking about 1,000 of them. I'm talking about 10 of them at your little sweet family picnic. Talk to me about the chaos that happens in that moment. People are freaking out. People are grabbing shovels. People, I mean, they're doing anything they can do. Go get the gun. I mean, the gun's crazy. It doesn't matter. you got to do something. And all of a sudden, there's mass chaos. I think that's what hornets do to armies. And I think that's exactly what's talked about here. All of a sudden, people are going into a panic. Now, listen, at my house, it doesn't take 10 of them. One's enough to get everybody running for their lives. Everybody running for their lives. Let's get out of here. There's a bee. Well, I just imagine 10 of them. And all of a sudden, the Freedom and Family is having a nice little sweet picnic in Great Bend, Kansas, and we're running for our lives. That's what that means. Now, we don't know exactly what hornet means. For instance, it might mean real hornets. Apparently, people knowing that this is a thing thought, if we have the wind with us, let's capture a bunch of these and just send them out ahead and uh, see if we can't get 100 hornets to meet the front lines, and it'll cause them to go crazy, and then we can attack. There was armies that actually did this kind of thing. Let's capture hornets, let's send them downwind, and then we'll attack thereafter. And I don't doubt that it would have worked. would have worked for me. Hey, hornets, I'm out of here. But it might have meant Egypt. One of the things about Egypt was they were known as the hornets. You know, everybody's got their thing. I... Uh, What's the Clinton Arrows, right? Clinton Arrows? Uh, to me, my, my high school team was the Great Bend Panthers. Uh, these were the Egyptian Hornets. Really, that's how they were known, as Hornets, which meant what? Well, even in this time, they would occasionally go into Canaan in raiding parties and just capture people and capture things and, and uh, create havoc. And whenever Egypt was coming and you knew Egypt was coming, you got plenty scared because you weren't going to beat them. And so they would just occasionally do that. So the thought was, hey, the hornets might have been God using Egypt to get the army soft for Israel that would come in afterwards. Could it have been? Well, most scholars say, yeah, it could have been, but it probably wasn't the first one, real hornets. It probably wasn't also the Egypt national symbol. It may well have been just that the word meant terror. The same kind of terror that ten hornets would cause at your family picnic is the same kind of terror that one way or another, this wave of terror dissipates the resolve of the enemy, and they say, whoa, let's take care of ourselves instead of taking care of the fight. Now, guys, I don't know. All I know is this. If you today want to do something serious for Jesus, 
then he has his hornets ready to send ahead of you. And I don't know what that means. I have no idea what that means for you in your particular situation. I just believe in hornets. And what if it were this? What if the hornet of God was God himself? It says, I'm going in before you, and I'm softening up the soil, and I'm going to build the city, and I'm going to work the land, and I'm going to defeat even the enemy before you ever get there. I will cause terror in the land, and it's going to be easy for you to take. Now, Israel goes in, and guess what? Almost invariably, everywhere they go, where they go with faithfulness to God, it happens. Amazing things happen. They go right in, swoop in, and they take the land. I don't know. Y'all, what I do know is this. Sometimes when terror goes in before, God does an amazing thing afterwards. And I, let me, 16 years ago, I was doing a talk radio show. And it was actually a, a Mississippi-based talk radio show then before the thing went national. And uh, in Mississippi, Katrina happened. And as you know, uh, it was terrible. And, that, and, and so this hurricane coming in right now feels to a lot of people like, oh, let's hope it's not the same thing. We didn't think, think Katrina was all that terrible before it hit, and then it became terrible. And uh, changed the economy of the state, changed a lot of things. It was terrible. It was terror. So we recognize that. So we got another earthquake coming in. Now, maybe big time, maybe not. Who knows? You never know until after it happens. And then you can kind of discern, that ah, it really was bad or eh, not so much. We've all been through this, right? Some of them are worse than others. Some of them dissipate and aren't hardly anything at all. We don't know until it happens. What I do know is this. Uh, if it ends up not being much, it's kind of like that lady at Costco yesterday that WLBT interviewed. And they said, hey, what about the hurricane coming? She goes, eh, not such a big deal. I'm from Kansas. <laughs> he says, excuse me? Yeah, they, they said 70 mile an hour is a win. Yeah, aren't you scared about that? She goes, that's just another day in Kansas. Grab your hair and act normal. <laughs> so whatever you got up there for hair, grab it. And <laughs> How cool is this? Grab it. Hey, I don't have to do that. All I got to do is act normal. 70 mile an hour is a win. Ain't nothing. Unless, of course, it blows down a tree and hits your house, and yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it can be something. But the, the, the truth is, it might be really bad. And I thought at the time this. I didn't want to write it up. Did go on the radio and say it. Didn't write it up because I knew, you know, if I ever run for office someday, they'll pin me with that one. <laughs> and it went like this. We got all kinds of people right now saying, hey, uh, Katrina was sent by God. How dare they say that? And I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't know. He's done a lot worse than that in human history. In biblical history. I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't be so fast to declare it not of God. What I would say is, God can use it if we allow him to use it in our lives. And I think that's exactly the way it is with wasps, with bees, with hornets, in any single situation. If we let God, he can use it for his glory. And we ought to think just that thought. That it is biblical that hornets went in, whatever that is. Real hornets, Egypt, terror. It goes in and guess what? So let me tell you what I'm thinking about. I'm doing this radio show. And all of a sudden, I get a phone call from the coast. I don't know how she made it, but she says, Matt, I finally found a small little signal on my phone. 
She goes, and I am now lying on my front lawn looking up at the sky. My house that was behind me is no more. It's crumbled to nothing. And all I can think about right now with the phone in my ear and looking up at the sky is, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And I thank him now like I've never thanked him before because what God has done in the last 24 hours is this. He has made me realize that that house really isn't worth all that much. But my life, my husband, my kids, and to be able to lay down on a front lawn and look up at heaven, that's everything to me today. Now, if God would prioritize your life like that in a moment, do you think that's God? Now, I'm not saying he would even sent the hornets in himself, but if Katrina could be called by somebody a hornet, and you come out saying, thank you, Jesus, out of that whole scenario, you don't think God's powerfully at work? And you don't think he couldn't do that with a storm coming in right now? That God can somehow use whatever he wants to use, including wasps, bees, and hornets, for his glory. And we do believe it. So I don't know what the hornet is here. All I know is apparently it was in this situation sent by God in order to defeat the enemy. And every one of us recognize we are in spiritual warfare. We have enemies. May God use himself or whatever he chooses to use to prepare us for a greater lesson in him. Now, here's the greater lesson. If you'll look at your Bible there. There is a what we're going to call a causal structure here. That is, there is cause and there is effect. And you can see it in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in tamim, which is to say completeness, wholeness, perfectness. And since the translators didn't like that word, they put in sincerity, which seems to me not, not be nearly powerful enough. But fear the Lord. Serve him in tamim, sincerity, and truth. And put away the gods which your father served. And in the next two verses, serve comes up seven times. Serve, 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 serve. Y'all, let me just say this. We are not made for prosperity. Now, that's, that's a stunning thought. Because some of the fastest growing churches in the world today are prosperity gospel churches. They're preaching this morning, you were not only made for prosperity, it's coming if you'll just love Jesus. I will declare to you, we don't do good with prosperity. God might send it to you, but he didn't send it to you for you. God doesn't send prosperity for you. What's he send it for? So that that prosperity might go right through you into human need right through you into the Great Commission, right through you into the building of churches across the world, right through you to serve Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Hey, think of a time when we took prosperity and did well with it, when we kept it for ourselves. Just think of a time in human history. It's kind of hard. I, I, would, I would assume America today, we've never been more prosperous than we are today. You may would agree with me, and we've never been more sinful than we are today. We never watched more pornography on the screen than we have today. We've never served ourselves more than we have today. We've never neglected evangelism as much as we have today. We've never served the poor, the needy, the disenfranchised more than we have today. 
And on it goes, y'all. We've never lied more. We've never stolen more. We've never had more people in prison. You can just never had more abortions because when you think in terms of not just getting aborted, but also taking the pills so that you can abort babies. We've never, y'all, we are not a righteous nation. And we're not righteous because I believe it's because we are so prosperous. Who needs God? We're doing fine without him. Look at us. Watch out. And so, the antidote to God doing everything for us and bring us into a land of incredible prosperity is serve. Serve, 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 and serve. Seven times in two sentences. We're to serve him. And then this famous phrase, as for me in my house, we're going to serve the Lord. As for me in my house, Satan's going to buffet us. Satan's going to bring all kinds of things. Satan's got hornets too. He's going to hornet us. And guess what? We're not going to bow to the gods. We're going to serve the one true God in sincerity, in completeness, in perfectness, and in truth. That's our calling, and as for me and the Freedom in the House, we will serve the Lord. Hey, I want you to say that right now. Only if, you, only if you believe it. As for me and, and I want you to put in your name, House, all right? Might be you, might be you and a whole bunch of people. As for me and my house, because you ready to go? Here we go, here we go. You ready? We're going to say it together. As for me and the House, we will serve the Lord. Do it again. Do it with strength this time. As for me and the house, we will serve the Lord. Oh, Jesus, hear our voices and may it come true. Because I think the key to this passage is what happens in your house. Is what happens in your home. I want to give you a real sobering insight. If you've got your Bible, it'll be real easy to do. I want you to flip the page and go to Joshua, or excuse me, go to Judges Chapter 2, verse 10. I think this is one of the most sobering passages in the whole Bible. Once you get through Joshua, wham! You end up in Judges, chapter 2, verse 10. All that generation, that's Joshua's generation, all Joshua's generation were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not Know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. That didn't take long. One generation, bam. And you know the book of Judges then. It's up and down, up and down. When they get down, he sends in a judge. Then they go back up, but then they head right back down after the judges. It's up and down. They call it the cycles of disobedience. Y'all. If this isn't sobering stuff, and if it doesn't declare you straight up what you need to do with your life, let me give you a couple of suggestions. Number one is I want you to think in terms of two bodies of water. There's a lot of water in this passage. Go back and look at it. Lots of water. But there are two major bodies of water that we need to always keep in mind. There's the Red Sea, and there's the Jordan River. We talked about that in this congregation in the last year or so. The Red Sea... I think resembles for us salvation. They were enslaved, and God saved them by passing through the Red Sea. It was a miracle, and it'll be a miracle too when you get saved. 
If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's going to take a miracle for you to know. And today, the miracle can happen. God can part the Red Sea and you can walk right through. It can happen today. He wants it to happen today. Now, I think one of the coolest things that we do here is whenever we baptize somebody with water, we take an opportunity to remember our baptism. You know how we have the folks that just got baptized hold some water up for us? We'll come dip it and make a cross on our forehead. Y'all, that's remembering your Red Sea. Now, that's not the only bottle of water. Then it comes around to say, we believe and we teach here at Dayspring that you need to walk with Jesus a while in order to find out how deep of a problem you really have. And so we come to the Jordan River. And the Jordan River for us is entire consecration of our lives so that he can entirely make us holy. And so that there's no barrier between us and him. I do not say, you know, I follow Jesus mostly, but I'm not sure he can be trusted with my pension. You know, I trust Jesus fully. I think I talked to you this about last. I trust Jesus fully, but I'm not sure he knows what kind of woman I need. I actually said that to him one day. Yeah, really. And the day I gave up Matt Friedman having to have his way on that issue was a great day for Matt Friedman, I can tell you. I mean, can I say it again? Praise God from whom all blessings flow on that deal. Because what I had in mind, I mean, guys, stay off Facebook, okay? But I go on occasionally. And when I go on, I go look up those people. I'm thinking, whoo, we, thank you, Jesus, for Mary Boardman. That's all i got to say about that, all right? Facebook occasionally serves a purpose. So all kinds of things like that. But what I want to say to you is, eventually you say, I give up all. And that's usually after you're saved. That is, for many of us, the thought is, I am at that point filled with His Spirit. I've gone through the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I am now completely and entirely his. And somebody's going to say, well, I did that at salvation. Yeah, you probably thought you did. But did I say it again? You probably thought you did, but you got to walk with Jesus a while to find out. You know, there's a difference between him and me. And whatever that difference is, Jesus, can you fill the gap? And the Holy Spirit can fill the gap. So that's one thing. Keep in mind two bodies of water and say, God, I want to go through both waters. And today, if I'm a Christian, I want to go across the Jordan River, and I want to know your fullness in my promised land. I just want to tell you this, though. It's a really a sobering thought. No one ever thinks about it. When I think in terms of promised land, can I tell you, boy, this, last night, my, uh, my world came apart. I was sitting in, my, uh, sitting in my, if you've been over to my house, my brown chair, my easy chair, the chair that kind of engulfs me. It's kind of hard to engulf a big guy like me. But it engulfs me, and I, I cranked it up, and it broke. Josh, my chair broke. I've been waiting for Josh to come over so I can ask him to fix it, and he's going to say, I don't think I can, Dad. And that'll, and then it, that'll be it. It's over. I'm crushed. My chair is dead. Or at least it's hobbling enough where I don't want to dance with it anymore. Whatever you want to call it. So... With that in mind, let me say, a lot of people think the promised land is about comfort and rest and enjoyment. Did anybody here actually read the Bible on that? 
You know what the promised land is. First thing they do is they got to fight. Second thing they have to do is fight. Third thing they have to do is fight. Fourth thing they have to do is fight through temptation because there's a temptation there and it continues and will always continue, y'all. I mean, you got to fight. And I know what he said about the crops. Hey, you get to eat crops you haven't planted. Yeah, that's the first year. Second year, that ain't the way it's going to be. You're going to have to plant the crops. You're going to have to harvest the crops. You're going to be dirty and sweaty. And that's the promised land. We all think it's comfort. And somebody give me a harp and let me sing with angels. Well, no. Promised land isn't about heaven. The promised land is about earth about your promised land here today. But let me tell you about your promised land. Number one, it is not a land of comfort and ease. Number two, it's the very place, wherever it is, that God wants to find us most faithful, but there's war there. It'll be true of your promised land. There's war going on in your promised land. Satan doesn't want you there. Satan hates your guts, but God wants you right there being faithful, no matter how hard it is. So, you want to affirm that with me today? The promised land is about war. Say it. Makes me uncomfortable too. The promised land is about constant temptation. Say it. The promised land is about constant. Now we can overcome that temptation. That's the good news. We don't have to be belabored by that temptation. We don't have to sin. Woo! We don't have to sin. Now, that's what Dayspring teaches. I'm going to tell you a lot of churches out there, even in this town, that'll teach you, oh no, you have to sin. Every day and every way you're sinning. And we say, no. God says, I want you to cross the Jordan, live in the promised land, and you can do it faithfully. Now what happens is, there's war over there. What happens is, there are temptations over there. What happens, there's hard work over there. What's going to happen is this. You're going to win the war in the promised land. You're going to overcome the temptations in the promised land. And you're going to work hard in the promised land, and you're going to enjoy it. Because you're going to recognize. That means I'm like God at that point. First line of the Bible. In the beginning, God worked. And I want you to be like me. Wow. Third thing is this. These lessons will come alive for you through your church and through your house. You need to take both seriously. And for those of you who aren't parents, God says, yeah, but I've got a lot of kids running around, day spring, in your community, in the schooling systems that need you. And it's up to you to give that next generation faith, hope, and love so that they have a shot at loving God as much as Joshua did, as much as Moses did, as much as Abram, named Abraham, did. God can make all that happen. I do want to say this. Take your house seriously. I'm not sure I want to do this. Some of you won't like me. Here we go. I'm going, to, I'm going to take one minute, 60 seconds. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and don't do everything the world does. That's the key to discipleship in the home. Don't do. So, uh, I got a book out there called Discipleship in the Home. If you got young kids, read it. That's a great book. Uh, but having said that, it's outdated. 
There's a technology chapter that's hideously out of date. I'm talking about TV. Stay away from TV. Stay away from TV. By the way, nobody here does that. But can I tell you? Stay away from TV. I got lots of really good reasons. Read about them. But guess what? Time sort of moved on from when I wrote that. Now we're dealing with all kinds of things. Let me talk about the iPhone real quick. I need, a, I need another minute on top of the minute. Okay, The iPhone. Everybody's got one. Every kid has one. Everyone has one. Just had some great research come out. You need to hear this. iPhones make particularly young people more depressed. Oh, I know. I want my kid to be more depressed. Here. And I'll pay the bill. Uh, more suicidal. Yeah, that's exactly what I want for my kid. Be more suicidal, kid. Less social skills. That's what I want for you. Poor grades. Less likely to go to church. Yeah, I got one too, guys. My kids didn't have one growing up. And I'm going to tell you right now, that would be one example out of a hundred. Every kid in town is doing it. But I'll tell you what, what if I wanted a happier kid? You grab that phone there, dear. It's not her phone. I'm just using it. It happened to be right there. Just... If you want her to be happier, take it from her. If you want her to have better social skills, take it from her. If you want her to have better grades, take it from her. Now, I'm, I'm, this in my opinion. This is what the research is telling us. If you want a better kid, take it from them. Or you can say, no, I don't want a better kid. Just take it. Because everybody else has one, and you'll be looked as a nerd and a wimp and an idiot if you don't have one. I'd like my kid to be an idiot, a nerd, and a wimp if it meant they were happier. I mean, I don't mind having a happier nerd, a nerd that makes better grades, a nerd that has better social skills, a nerd that wants to go to church. I'd take a nerd over the leading cheerleader, over the quarterback of the team, over anybody, if it meant, hey, that means you're holier. Now, that's an iPhone. I already told you there's a hundred other things you've got to decide about and counsel your kids about and disciple them with. We cannot just stand around and say, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord when it's convenient. All other times, we'll let the world take the reins. And the world's taking the reins way, 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 way too much of the time with our kids. And that's why Joshua says, not mine. But the truth is, not enough people said it with him. Because they lost the whole generation. Wow! How do you lose a whole generation? You lose them by saying church and home is not really that important. Y'all... Thank you for being the people that believe in your local church. Thank you for being the people that believe in discipling your kids at home. Thank you for being the people that knows it's not necessarily the best thing to be your kid's best friend. Jesus didn't say be your kid's best friend. He said be holy parent to your kids. Jesus wants to bring us to a place where we're taking both bodies of water seriously. Not just for us, but for our kids. And this is what he says. I'm going to send the hornet before you so that all that can happen. Do you believe it? Say, I believe it. 
in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we believe it. In the strong and powerful name of Jesus, we believe it. Amen and amen. God bless you, Dayspring.